Hi guys! It's been a while. It has. Yeah, indeed. It's been it's been years according to the American graffiti timeline. <laughs> well, at least two. At least two. Yeah. I guess I should do an introduction to the episode, although it hasn't been a long time for our listeners. They're just back after, you know, it's just a normal day for them. But uh, it's been a while since we reunited in this studio. I'm Tierney Steele, one of your hosts. And with me is Doris. Hi. And Rachel. Hello. We we talked in our last episodes on how you guys survived, felt, doing your first finish in a podcast. It's very exciting stuff. Oh, yeah. Rachel, <laughs> this was your first, this summer was your first experience with American Graffiti. So I have to ask, what did you think of more American Graffiti? I, okay, <clears throat> I know it was uh, not a popular sequel. I can't say that I hated it. I I don't know. It really kind of hit me. I mean, just the deep, I mean, it's, it's just like it's not your... Uh, Welcome to the world is pretty much like, <laughs> and just the, uh, hitting the themes of the time that it's representing. Like I, it's just great at that. I think just all the different stylistically, there's a few things I didn't care for how it was presented, but overall I was, I, I can't say that, uh, I hated it. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, I know it's a very, very different feel from American Graffiti, but it was meant to be, I think. Welcome to the world. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Being a grown-up. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Um, Doris, you were revisiting more American Graffiti. You were the yeah. only person who had any prior knowledge of what we were getting ourselves into. <laughs> yeah, and I'm but I'm starting to question myself. Maybe I had amnesia in between because um, <laughs> it was a couple of years since I last saw that and um, I kind of hated it. Okay. But watching it now, I didn't hate it anymore. Just like Rachel. I think it is not great. It tries to do stuff and never quite gets there. And, and But it has interesting, um, they trying to achieve and, and not quite managing to achieve, but it's interesting, I think. And yeah. Three for three. I weirdly yeah. loved this movie. <laughs> so, like, Doris, is it different, like, approaching it, rewatching it now as to when you first had seen it? Depending, I mean, I don't know how long ago you had Not seen it. Not that long, actually. Maybe maybe three or four years. Okay, because I didn't know if with as as life progresses, if different experiences in life kind of make you look at it in a different light from before, but... I think this happens with every film that you watch. I mean, it happened with the original American Graffiti for me as well. Yeah, I think my biggest thing is I'm not defending it being like, this was a great movie. It's been like, it's it's clunky. Like, there, there are four different. So for those who did not watch along at home, first of all, do your homework. No, I'm just kidding. It is four different stories. And each of them is filmed in a different aspect ratio, different color saturation, different style, very much on purpose. And I will say the first 20 minutes or whatever it took for the first cycle to go around, I was like, not into that. By the end of the movie, I really appreciated it. <laughs> My biggest thing was as much as I enjoyed this movie, it's a, it's an hour and 50 minutes long and Boy, howdy, do you feel every minute. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> it feels so much longer than it is. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you could lose at least 30 minutes, I think. 
in one of the episodes I did, I clearly kind of talk about it with someone and I say, well, it's not done by George Lucas. Oh boy, I didn't remember. It is actually a Lucasfilm production. So. <laughs> it is, and I'm, I'm so... I'm so intrigued. I kind of want to read more on the making of this because Lucas is the person who was like, wow, this is a terrible film. And I feel like that kind of, when the executive producer's like, I think that kind of uh, gives you a sign because I was looking at the numbers. It did perfectly fine at the box office. It made its money back, yeah. And so basically what it is is that B.W.L. Norton, I know he credits differently, but that's so much fun to say, wrote the script for More American Graffiti, and Lucas said, hey, if I like the script, you can direct it. And he did, and so that's what happened. And But George Lucas did direct a lot of the Terry story, I heard, because people were saying, uh, one of the big, like, Hollywood what-ifs is that George Lucas was supposed to make Apocalypse Now. And, and this is why it reminds me of Apocalypse. Apocalypse Now, like Apocalypse Light. Yes. The yeah, comedy and, uh, version. Exactly. In uh, Debbie's story, at one point, when she's talking about Lance, and someone's like, oh yeah, I know Lance, a surfer named Lance. That They think that's an Apocalypse <laughs> Now reference. Like, there are these little <laughs> things that it's like, oh, and, and people were saying like, wow, George Lucas did an amazing job making two helicopters look like an entire platoon, you know, like. Yeah. So I wonder how much he was involved, how much of it was afterwards he didn't like. I heard, um, oh, shoot, I should have looked at the timeline. Marshall Lucas cut the Debbie scenes where it's that multiple pictures on screen. So, so yeah, so uh, we should say the four stories are John Milner Racing, which is 1964, looks very early 60s. Terry in Vietnam, 1965, which is very Apocalypse Now. Debbie in 1966, which is inspired by the Woodstock film. And why is my mind blinking? Oh, because I blocked it out. Laurie and Steve in 1967, which was inspired by films of the student protests and things like that. Although it is more like Kramer versus Kramer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. And um, speaking of Francis Ford, Coppola Connections. Did anyone else get massive Connie and Carlos vibes in that first yes. fight in the kitchen? Yes. She even grabs I, a broom I, I and is knocking stuff note. off the top the same way. It's so weird. She takes that broom. Yeah, she starts throwing everything. He's like, takes that teapot out and he's like, just throw this. And then she that does. Was your mother's wedding I present. Your mother's going to want tea. And <laughs> <laughs> oh. he hands her the broom and is like, go ahead, hit me. And she. <laughs> you know what has not changed for me? Me wanting to hit Steve every time I see him. <laughs> yes. Slap Steve week is back, folks. So we're jumping all over. One thing I have to say is um, I read that at the end, they do the little, you know, yearbook pictures thing. Originally, it said that Steve and Lori divorced like two years later or something. Yeah. Uh... I'm kind of glad they took that out because by the end of that storyline, I really saw Steve and Lori as that couple. And I'm not saying this is good for the kids either, but that couple that every few years is going to have a massive fight and then get back together. Really? I don't. I Maybe that's my optimism. Maybe that's me growing up. But it bummed me out to think of them actually breaking up for good. Yeah, because I, I, I got the feeling they will break up. Maybe, yeah, maybe a couple so of years Lucas. down the line, but... Uh, <laughs> you're, you're certainly not alone. This is my, like, outsider opinion that most people would look at that marriage and be like, oh, they need to get divorced. But the, 
You know what it is? It's the fact that they both, like, got down on their knees looking for the wedding ring. Yeah. Later. Like, I just, I saw them as, and I don't know if anyone else has had these couples in their lives where, like, every few years there's this massive fight and they're like, that's it. It's over. And then, like, 48 hours later they're back together. And it's like, you're. I got the kind of original (laughs) American graffiti vibe where they have, like, when they're at the, you know, the like, the makeout point and, you know, he wants something to remember her by and, you know, she mm-hmm. storms out of the, you know, she kicks him out of the car and, you know, you're like that, you know, that's it. They're done. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, they have that, the after the race and then that big moment where they just realize, like, what they want and each other is what they want and... I feel like when she sees him out the window and after they, when they're looking for the wedding ring, it's kind of a callback to that. So I could see where, yeah, they would have a big fight and then make up. And then maybe it's one of those where once the kids are kind of grown up out of high school, then they kind of realize, yeah, maybe we should uh, call it quits. You know, we- <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that is what I think. The, the Al Gore uh, approach. <laughs> yeah. If you if you uh, look at the first film, they kind of reunite after a traumatic experience. Yeah. Laurie has just been in an accident. She could have been killed. In this film, they reunite after a traumatic experience. They've been in this police riot. They've been arrested. They've almost been beaten up. Do they need traumatic experiences to get back together yeah, again? Me- when will they run out of traumatic experiences? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the next fight, she just, you know, calmly goes to her parents' house and that's what finishes it. So we have to talk about the biggest clunker. Because I, I mentioned, you know, each of these four stories is fine. There was a point watching it where I was like, this maybe could have been a short instead of a feature film. But the biggest clunker of all, the not Richard Dreyfus. We got to talk yeah. about Andy uh, Anderson. The little brother that happened i was like wait she has another brother like there's another brother (laughs) who was never mentioned a reverse happy days there is another brother (laughs) yeah (laughs) who magically appears instead of disappears so richard dreyfus did not come back for more american graffiti which I i will say watching the opening credits i was very pleasantly surprised at how many people did yeah basically everyone everyone else even joe the pharaoh yeah and it makes so much more sense if, I mean, well, he was going to college back east, but uh, it, this storyline makes so much more sense for Kurt. This could be why Kurt goes to Canada. Oh, definitely. But instead, because no Richard Dreyfus, Kurt is magically already in Canada. Thank you, Ron Howard, for that reminder. <laughs> in the one line yelled at Laurie. Kurt's in Canada. My brother. My other brother, who's never been mentioned before. <laughs> yeah, and who's a super lefty. Yes. Yes. I was a little bummed because at first I thought he was a super lefty and we were getting some LGBTQ representation with him yeah, and his too. partner. That's what but I then thought at the end he's with the girl. That's yeah. a bummer. And this girl looks like that. a Debbie a Debbie doll. Mm. Yep. So I really was like rolling my eyes at a lot of the early lefty stuff. And I will say, I laughed so hard. It's so bad. Lori yelling at him. Don't you think the president knows more than you do? We have to support him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is so clunky. But bless Cindy Williams. 
there's a later scene where it's after he burns his draft card where she says, don't you remember my friend Terry Fields? He'll have died for nothing if we don't win the war. And she does something with her voice where it's different from when she was yelling about we have to support the president, where you see that like, yeah, the stereotype is that Laurie and Steve are these square drips who aren't like in on what's going on in 1967. But you get the idea that there is that little part of Laurie that is serious. Like, no, my friend died in Vietnam. And I thought the contrast between her and Andy was great at that moment. She says we have to win the war for his death to not mean. And his thing is the best way to honor him is to end the war. So that more people don't die. And so I thought that was a really, really good encapsulation where like, yeah, there would be people Mm -hmm. who felt that way. Of course, they could have gotten to that conclusion a lot sooner. (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little bit. And and then it immediately jumps to them slapstickly running through the hallway. So it it does uh, undermine the uh, poignancy a little bit. (laughs) And one thing I, when um, it kind of goes with a, you know, changing of the times from when even they were growing up in high school because um, that that girl that's kind of like a uh, Debbie doll, what we called her earlier, um, the one that's a cheerleader. And then, you know, yeah. uh, Lori's like, oh, wow, you know, I was on varsity and doesn't even think, you know, it, she's like, oh, a connecting point. And then that girl does the uh, her uh, cheer. <laughs> And I think that's one of those where, you know, Lori realizes, like, wow, you know, this is not the uh, times I remember. (laughs) Did anyone else's mind boggle doing the math on how young these people are? Yes. Yes. It's been five years since she graduated from... Lori is 23. Yeah, and she <laughs> has, her her twins are three years old. Yeah, and of course there is this. It's 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 very fast. It's kind of like a side mention where they make fun of her that she had to get married because she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course this reflects back to um, something that was supposed to be in 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 the uh, other movie, but was cut out or something that. Um, they tease uh, Steve that he and Laurie are going to get married because they have to soon or something oh, like that. Yeah, yeah, I do yeah. remember that. It's kind of a bummer to think. So Steve doesn't go to college because he stays home, gets Laurie pregnant, they get married, and they have kids. Laurie never goes insurance. to college. No. She's a housewife. And Steve wants her to remain a housewife. Oh, Steve. Oh, Steve. Oh, many, so many like ugly how, things are said. How hard and how stressful it is to sell insurance. I mean, maybe it is. I mean, I, I can't say it isn't, but just how he's like, oh, it's so hard. Yeah, what it probably me? is stressful. I mean, he's probably working on commission. Yeah. And supporting to, again, he is 23 years old. He looks For my 23. 23rd birthday, I had a Care Bear cake. I mean, yeah. this is insane to me. <laughs> he looks 43 in that film. With that yeah. stash in his that face. Mustache. Come on. It's it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And Laurie, she, she has those hair clips. Like, if they... They could just have put rollers in her hair. Yeah. it It kills me because... At one point, Steve says, like, and you can get a job in two years. And she starts screaming at him in two years. And it's like, Steve, (laughs) there is an argument to be made. Like, I'd really like you to stay home until the kids are in school. And in two years, they would go to kindergarten. And in a calmer situation, I could see someone making that argument, being like, hey, it's really important to me that we wait until the kids are in school. But that, of course, is not how Steve says it because he's Steve. 
Because he's like, oh, you can work. And then Lori's like, yay. And then he's like, in two years. <laughs> yeah, and, and then he always, he always pulls his, I am the head of the household. I'm mm-hmm. saying what goes. Which, of course, is his legal right at that time. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a bummer. <sighs> yeah, absolutely. Did anyone enjoy the radicalization of Steve, though? When he's um, beaten by the cop and he's down the ground. And there, there's like a close-up of Ron Howard. And I was like, the radicalization of Steve <laughs> Bolander. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of well, can't help cheering his, a little when protest, they steal the bus. His, his protest when the cop says, you call me scum. And he says, call me scum. I voted Republican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're fudging things left and right. Because Lori says something about the PTA. And I'm like, your kids are three. You ain't on no PTA, Lori. Someone just thought that was a funny line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe she's in, in, in the PTA um, proactively. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it Debbie who says, you should be so lucky? As in, I'm going to get thrown out of the PPA, uh, of the PTA and she, you should be so oh, lucky. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Debbie doll. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're calling her Debbie doll. Did anyone actually get what her name is? I, I did at the time. It's completely gone from my mind. <laughs> I'm sure Andy introduces her with a name. I'm sure of it, but it is gone. <laughs> Replaced by Debbie Doll. And I, I'm i going back to the, way back to the credits when I, I guess going into it, you know, not knowing what to expect. You know, Ron Howard does not get, he gets like a special appearance by, I mean, a lot of people are credited before him in, in the opening credits. So I was like, oh, Wow. <laughs> Someone's agent did some negotiating there. So I was like, even <laughs> yeah. Bo Hopkins got billing before him. <laughs> Manuel Padilla did. Well, yeah. someone didn't isn't mentioned at all, but we'll get there. <gasps> we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> let's. let's uh, I love that we are rolling up Steve and Laurie first, which is the last story, but chronologically. But that's chronologically, okay. yeah. So it it takes place New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty seven. All of those take place New Year's Eve. Should we just go backwards in time? Should we talk about Debbie's New Year's Eve? Yeah, let's go backwards. Let's go back from 70, uh, 67 to 66 now. So it took me a really long time to get into Debbie's story. But I oh, yeah. I really appreciate I thought Candy Clark did an amazing job. Like this character is still the Debbie that we met in American Graffiti. Yeah, she, she kind of goes a natural progression of things. She is basically, when we first see her on screen, which is 1964, she is basically still the same Debbie. Yeah. And in 66, she's very different, but she is, she is romantic. She is plucky. Plucky. Yeah. She, she takes things into her own hands. When she got into the van and she was kept putting her hand over the guy's mouth, I was like, that is Debbie. (laughs) Like there she is. And, and, And to be able to portray that, same character under such incredibly different circumstances, I thought was an amazing job. I thought Candy Clark really hit it out of the park. Yeah, and she's kind of a tragic character as well because um, she could have ended up with Terry had he come back. I don't know. Uh, we have to talk about Terry's story in, in a little bit uh, yep. more depth. But we meet her and she's saying that, you know, yeah. my friend died in Vietnam. Yeah, and- I've, lost, I've lost two friends on New Year's Eve, she says. And she says friend. Although it, it looks like they are still a couple. Yeah. In the first few. Yeah. In the first few when minutes. They, yep. Yep. I, I, I assumed that too. 
because they come together to the race and they seem yeah, yeah. pretty couple-y. And then I said, well, in, in the rest of her story, she has incredibly bad taste in men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Lance, oof. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have basically over all the stories, except for Terry's story, I have a word creep. I have yeah. the word creep scrolled down everywhere. There's always some scummy character. And of course, in, in this, it's Lance and her boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The minute they went into the commune house, whatever, I was like, oh, geez, because there is a line in, oh, of course, now I can't remember which essay it is, but it's Joan Didion. It would be in, God, I can't remember the name of her, like, classic California essays book. But the, the point is, she's talking about visiting a friend, and this could be anywhere at this time period, going to visit a friend who lives in a house where it's like free love and isn't this all great? And she said, the women are still in the kitchen cooking and washing the dishes and stuff. And it's called the um, the women's trip. Mm-hmm. And she's very like, this is bullshit. And I agreed because you notice when you read about the 60s yeah, and how wonderful it is. It's a lot more wonderful for the guys. Of than course. The girls. Yeah. And yeah, this whole idea, it just makes my skin crawl every time I see it portrayed on screen, in a book, whatever, because I'm like, this is BS. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is still of a patriarchal society, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah. So, and the fact that Carol's there killed me. Rainbow. Oh, no. When you have that earlier in the story, again, at one of Milner's. Yeah, we see her briefly. And she's with that Perry. And kind of sense that's the beginning of her turn into, because he seems like, I guess, at that time, they'd call him a beatnik. Yeah. Late beatnik, early hippie. Which led, yeah, led into hippie. Yeah, maybe. He, he looked like the, I'm studying arts at the Liberal College. Um, yeah. Kind of. Although, kudos to them. I know it's in another story, but I will say it here, and I'll probably say it again. Good job giving me exactly the John and Carol story that oh. I wanted. <laughs> Even that brief little thing of them, you just get that connection oh. between them. That Yeah, that the John kind of like a big brother to Carol. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the love, but not romantic. Oh, yeah. But yeah. then later at the end, when it's just, when they say she always goes for those 50 types, and it's so... Yep. Oh, okay, yeah. And it's like... Yes, because you never get over your first crap. Like, ah, yeah. it's so I love perfect. that throwback into, you know, she goes for the 50s types. Because I was like, yeah. oh. <laughs> and she's not working as a topless dancer, as far as we know. So, like, maybe there's hope that this will just be a brief phase in Carol's life. And then she will move on. <laughs> yeah. But um, if I'm doing the math, Carol is like, what, 17? 17. Yeah. Yep. 16. Has Carol dropped out of school? Probably. And Probably. Yeah. In, in the original movie, she never even met Debbie. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm wondering if the idea is that that John's death, you know, maybe like bring some people together. Yeah. Oh, maybe okay. it, if Debbie is Terry's uh, girlfriend, then of course, yep. maybe they would meet up. Maybe but just losing people. They both kind of came together and losing people. They well, and you notice about. Ava's there too. So I I like oh. that little tree. I I really like that little tree. When they were sneaking into the concert, I was like, "This is weird, like filming choices." But I really like what's happening in the story <laughs> <laughs> of these three girls who didn't, who never met, never interacted. One of them didn't exist in the original movie. 
movie, but you totally get how by 1966, living in the same town, they are now friends. Yeah. Like, they started hanging out. They went to a couple things together. And then maybe shared grief. Could very well be. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing Ava and Carol bonded after John's death. And then especially after Terry's, you know, like, you could totally see how these three girls would kind of latch on to each other. Yeah. It's just that Carol kind of... What else has she experienced? Because she looks, of course, it is not 1964. When was the movie shot? 79? 79. 79. So uh, for someone who was 13 in the original, that is a long time to develop. Yeah. But for me, the timeline just doesn't work with the way she looks. Because she looks so much older than she's supposed to be. I wonder if that was kind of on purpose where they didn't want to emphasize that Carol is only 17 in these scenes. (laughs) And then, of course, since she's calling herself Rainbow now, maybe it also implies that she kind of has taken on the the hippie trail a little more seriously than the others. They never say anything about drugs, but it could be. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me because Debbie goes on a whole adventure so debbie works as a <laughs> topless dancer with a heart yep, of gold yep. with a heart of gold with a heart and of a gold snake. and a great negotiating technique yep. i mean <laughs> <laughs> she does have a line that she is not willing to cross and she knows where it is and she sticks to it so there is part of, and i love uh someone's like oh it's awful what you or it's creepy what you do and she's like it's not my fault you think the human body's creepy or something like that where it's oh, like yeah yeah okay she's Again, she has made a decision. It is maybe not one I would have made, but she knows where her boundaries are. Yeah, and she's supporting herself. Yeah. Yeah, so no judgment. A little bit of judgment for the snake, but other than that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the real creep, the real creep here is is the guy who employs her. Of course. Guys who run uh, dancing halls not known as upstanding citizens (laughs) of the world. I did laugh when the guy shot the snake. He's like, I'm putting that on your toe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then she keeps the snake. She's like, oh, you know how she's she's always taking towels. Well, I want to put this up there. And she'll take one and like, that snake will fall. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that it continued throughout. Like, it it, it had its own... uh, story arc there <laughs> i mean she 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 kind of gets pretty uh cheeky also talking to the cop yeah she's fun yeah well and I, it makes me sad too that you know she well, well you know i admire her negotiating for that last what 25 dollars mm. for the bail money but then it makes me sad because you know she's doing it for out of the good of her heart for like you know romantic feelings for him and he's just like yeah whatever like he's all about him and his (laughs) going of course making it big it kills me when i think it is rainbow slash carol who's like you are way too good for this guy and it's like yes and it's hard because you see there's a couple points in the film where you see that lance and debbie do have some good times together like you totally get why she you know and in her romantic idealization she of course, blocks out all the bad stuff and only thinks about the good stuff. And it's like, Debbie, no, you're so much better than this. And so I was rooting the minute the other band showed up. I was like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No more Lance. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, Newt, he looks like he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Her interactions with the band are hilarious. Everyone seems respectful. I loved her being like, how do I play the tambourine? (laughs) And you just do it like this and the pros do it like that. (laughs) Yes. 
That killed me because I had an aunt. So my aunt Patty, who I looked like growing up, she's an air quotes Irish twin with my dad. She was a singer and her husband played bass. He was a Vietnam vet. They actually met because he had just come back and they were set up on a blind date. They had like the band set up in their basement and it was always, I was always so intimidated by it because it's like, Terry, you just go up there and just play the tambourine. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What's going on? (laughs) So I had a like really like flashbacky moment of someone handing me a tambourine and being like, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) Y'all are really good at this and I am not. (laughs) You connect with Debbie's story on a totally different level than the rest of us. (laughs) I was not wearing that hat at the time as a like 10 year old, but um, yeah, she, she looks great. Her story ends in a pretty good place. I think she has this madcap adventure with the band and she realizes that Lance is an asshole. Yeah. And of course she kind of gets this redemption that she's actually looking for, for the band to get Lance a chance as a musician and she makes it with the band. Yeah. She gets on stage. Yeah. It's so good. And I really appreciated that in this movie set in the 60s, set partially in a war zone, the Wilhelm screen comes three in a bar times? fight. <laughs> three times, I think. Yeah. But there where there was one in this bar fight and right before um they like throw Lance along the bar and I got massive Raiders Marion's bar flashbacks. <laughs> But then, of course, and and no offense to the movie, it's done better in Raiders. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not this in Debbie's storyline. We we get another reference to other films, of course, with the cop. Hmm. The uncredited cop. <laughs> yes. Okay. Can can we talk about Bob Falfa for a second? Yes. Because <laughs> before he said his name, I was like. That voice. <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, you, you just... actually have to, you have to look really close. And, and if you if you just watch uh, very distractedly from the corner of your eye, you will not get that this is Harrison Ford. Yeah. But it is. So Bob Falfa became a cop. Is that logical? <laughs> is that a logical progression of a story from the first film? What do you hmm. think? I remember talking to someone about the differences between Falfa and Milner and maybe but but I think we knew he became a cop and so that colors your like that makes you biased to look for like he would enjoy the authority and yeah the power play hippies yeah Yeah. like he would be all about that power trip I could yeah I could see that and he's a real asshole cop as well. <laughs> and then, of course, um, the way he talks, are you getting your, your groove off busting long hairs? And I said, well, Harrison Ford, <laughs> who didn't want to cut his long hair from yeah. the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we all know that he at least used to be partial to, to Mariana himself. So the joints oh, yeah. <laughs> It yeah. is so ironic to me. <laughs> but then, of course, um, it has probably played a little bit into that direction. Oh, yeah. It's a fun cameo, though. It's very, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and good on him for coming back, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get classic Ford Finger action there. Oh, you're all over now. <laughs> I was excited because I was like, oh, man, I wonder where else we'll see him. <laughs> In the movie, I and it's like, for nope. him to like Me be at the campus with Laurie and Steve Although or I'm something. glad he wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he wasn't would... because the cops there. I mean, except for the one who's caught on the loo. <laughs> That's the thing. He could have been that one, and that would have made me happy. <laughs> that would have been, yeah. If the last time we see 
Bob Falfa, it's him on the toilet. With his hands down. <laughs> <laughs> hands down around his mouth. No, but across um, his legs. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, I'm, I'm glad he wasn't um, among the cops who beat up all the young uh, kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned, yeah, Debbie's story is filmed. What do you even call that? 60s? Like, just, would you like to see the 60s on film? That's what it looks like. Psychedelic, psychedelic, uh, split screen, all that. And they use it to really great effect. Yeah. I love when they hit the, um, when they hit the fire hydrant and it slowly takes over the whole screen and the three different things of the fire hydrant going off. Like, there's. They use it really well. Whatever you do, Bobby, don't hit those trash cans. I love that. (laughs) And see, like, that thing, like, I guess I inferred that he was, because we talk about how they don't really talk about or recognize, you know, like, drugs or anything, but I I kind of, you know, inferred that, you know, he he might be on a little something, because he's... Even she's like, you know, wow, you talk a lot, or you know, do you ever talk? Yeah, yeah. I think every everyone in there is high all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think is that Barry that she, that talks a lot. I think he's high on uh, something different, perhaps a little. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, that that was my first thought. Even before, like that line of "Wow, you talk a lot," I was like, "Well, he's he's definitely not chill." No, that man has done some (laughs) cocaine. (laughs) But yeah, I think the others are just typical stoned hippies, and then like the straight front man who's actually keeping the band together. Which God bless those people. As as someone who did not drink beer their freshman year of college and thus became the person in charge oh, of yeah. getting the group home at night. <laughs> a shout out, a, a salute to the sober people keeping their drunk and or high friends in line <laughs> because that is a thankless job and it's very important. <laughs> so Debbie's story starts and is in some very depressing dark places, but it ends... It's, it's got a happy ending. And I hope she eventually finds the right person. Yeah, it really bummed me out that she and Terry never met. Spoilers, let's talk about Terry. Oh, oh my God. I literally was like, I, I was watching this on my, on my laptop on my bed and I like stood up and was almost screaming at the end of Terry's story I because I did not see this coming at all. What yeah, I like, and, 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 to me, that is kind of a downer actually. Because if he really survives Vietnam, if he goes to Europe, and all the other characters, even four years after, don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you think they mean he would somehow him? let him, them know somehow. What I liked about his is because as he had always put on, even in the first one, like that kind of, when, especially, you know, when he, after he meets Debbie, that kind of macho tough guy persona you know yeah, terry the I tiger know. and all that and it's like <laughs> his hunting horses or whatever his yeah. hunting jeep <laughs> and in his story in this it's like he still has that but it serves him well like yeah he needs i mean it, it just makes sense it's like okay so this is other, other than the ending where it says doesn't he care for his friends at all yeah his yeah, story yeah. is the most impressive to me and I love how they present how jaded that they become. Because, you know, they get that uh, one newbie guy in there and he's all like, you know, I want American flags on this door. Yeah. Oh and God. even I was like, yeah. that's a terrible idea. You're just, you're not going to advertise you're in America. But he's when all. When he and Bo are like, 
sorry, sir, you've got yourself a couple of cowards here. Yeah, he's a, he's so hopeful, and the other guys are just kind of like, I mean, even when he's in his introductory speech and somebody, you know, blows that raspberry, and he's like, who did that? And they're just like, they know what it's like. It's like, you're, you know, you lose that shine real quick. <laughs> yeah, he lost it within a day. Yeah. Even yes. when they... His first mission, and it was over. <laughs> so, yeah, because Terry's like, oh, don't worry, sir, you never get used to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. I mean, Terry kind of, in, in, in the short scene where they are together in 64, he's just, well, he's being shipped off that very night, and he says, well, they, they need Terry Fields, you know? Yeah, they yeah. need a real guy over there. He's still in that bravado Terry the tiger mood. I loved it, though, that he said, uh, the only way we're going to win this war is if we get the toad. The toad and I was yeah. like, look at yeah. you embracing it. Like, yes. I, I just, I really liked it. I felt like he had kind of been given... He'd given himself an identity through this. He's got the girl. He's got his yeah. uniform. He's got the bravado. And then seeing the change in him once he's been in Vietnam for a while. Oh, so when we first see Terry in Vietnam. He's trying to shoot his arm off. He is trying to yeah. shoot his own arm off. And <sighs> it is so dark. And yet I laughed so hard. Yeah. When he I mean, he, he totally fumbles it. This is so Terry. Completely oh, Terry. So but if you really think about it, he was willing to, to inflict him, himself. It's uh, awful. This, yeah, it's it's awful injury. Home. When I got very much vibes of, okay, I'm going to say it, the prequels. When his gun jams and he's like, oh, I got a very vibe of, and like Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace when like Obi-Wan, when they, when they lose their lightsabers or the lightsabers short out and their masters get mad at them. And I was like, oh, boy <laughs> really wow i got vibes of that a little bit i mean bit. He, he might have gotten his wish huh. i mean he's 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 trying to to uh get himself hurt but he might have gotten his yeah. his wish to get hurt yeah i loved the football scene where he wants to go up against the toughest guy yeah. and he's yeah. like some guys have all the luck he yes. broke his leg yes, when he, no. when he broke his knee <laughs> he's broke his leg I didn't. I didn't get uh, prequel wipes there, but I got mash wipes. And after that's what I was going to ask Tierney about. Ah, I was going to say Tierney. Tierney, mash feels anyone? Uh, Massive, massive (laughs) mash feels. But different war, but same. (laughs) Not just the Terry thing. So I have not watched a lot of other Altman films, but more American Graffiti feels like a Robert Altman film to me. Yeah, kind of movie a uh, film film not movie film nerds come at me because <laughs> i thought of robert altman so many times <laughs> watching this movie yeah i get that yeah there's a football scene there's the helicopters yeah. there's that vibe it is so mash it is amazing and that's i think what i really liked is i Kept waiting at the end. Uh, first of all, I did not understand Terry's plan at first, which I don't think you're supposed to yeah. with the cake and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, God, where is this <laughs> going? What is happening here? And then you see the payoff. But honestly, my heart was in my throat through the credits because I was like, they cut to him at the very end, walking through the jungle, singing Old Lang Syne. And I was like, oh, God, something's going to happen. Oh, God, something's going to happen. Oh, God, something's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, and the fact yeah. that it was a happy ending, you're just like... like <laughs> my heart grew three sizes because I, this is ridiculous this is movie magic <laughs> you can't just walk out of vietnam i don't exactly, care what you've yeah. done you can't just walk away but one of our characters is killed and that is joe the pharaoh yeah. oh he was gonna make terry a pharaoh i know that oh i just love 
something about that, just how, just thinking back of, of them in the first movie, just how different they're, you know, and it's like, yeah. now they're, you know, he's offering to make them a pharaoh and they're like buddies and it's just like, oh man. <laughs> Whereas in, in the first film, the pharaohs wouldn't have, wouldn't have bothered no. with Terry. No. And they didn't even cross no. paths in the movie, the first movie. Yeah. It's just because they're there in this situation. They're both from the same hometown and now they've bonded and they're best friends. He's going to make Terry a pharaoh. It's so amazing. And I love, I also love that he wants Terry to be a used car salesman given <laughs> Terry's interaction with used car salesmen yeah. in the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess not used cars, but uh, yeah, I thought that was a nice little callback. You know, you sell them, we'll steal them. Like, it was <laughs> that made me pretty great. I was very sad when, uh, when we lost Joe the pharaoh. Yeah. What I noted down is that during the fight scenes in Vietnam, we always get the most soft music. Yep. The most peaceful, dreamy songs playing in the background. Mmm. So ironic. Speaking so of songs, I like that they... Because I've heard the Green Beret song that they play. It's mm. the first time when we see Terry in, in Vietnam. Yeah. When he's setting up his, his rifle. His, his plan. Seems ironic in that usage when you find out what his plan is in that song. It's kind of... It's like... Uh, <laughs> I love... Again, it is not funny. It is incredibly dark. But I laughed so hard. I was like, stop shooting. It's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it invokes old slapstick movies, of course. It's, yeah. <laughs> there's just so, they call in every stereotype of Vietnam. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just mm, tearing absolutely. the toad. And then um, his superiors and, and this uh, suit politician there, they're so pretentious. Mm. And, and, and the payback at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Terry did right. And I hope he, ha he had a happy life in France or somewhere. Or in England. Yeah. I would see him as a Marcus in, a, in another country at first. You know, like yeah. when... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I think he would acclimate himself. Yeah. Terry has proven to be much more of a survivor than we would have. Oh, uh, he's absolutely guessed. resourceful. <laughs> and I would think, yeah, especially after going through Vietnam. Yeah, he would be... And be he gets that amazing last line. The war is over, and I won. Yep, yep. <laughs> he's no he's he's still clumsy, but he's no longer the the guy that everybody makes fun of. No, he's the one laughing. I like that idea that he becomes kind of a Marcus Brody. Like, ah, that's so good. <laughs> and it means Harrison Ford can be in the sequel now. <laughs> yeah. Just hope he doesn't hurt himself before they. <laughs> I'll say it here and then we can talk about John Milner, but one of the reasons that I think this movie was not as successful as American Graffiti is what what is the thing we talked about the most in American Graffiti? That it's all about the nostalgia, the nostalgia for the music, the nostalgia for the cars, the nostalgia for the time. No one was nostalgic for this. That's what, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. No one is nostalgic for war. And then no one is nostalgic for... You You can be nostalgic for the hippie movement, the love, peace, happiness thing. But of course, no one is nostalgic for, for student uh, riots and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah and uh, what my note was, some people love the sound of car engine revving, which was American graffiti. Yeah. No one was nostalgic for the sound of police batons hitting bodies. Yeah. Like, no. no. And if you were... You need some professional help that you will not get from this podcast because that is weird. <laughs> so when, you know, with some of the really tragic, like, you know, the, the, the 
Kent State, and mm-hmm. you know, because that you know, where there were fatalities, and it's just like, yeah, nobody, nobody wants to recall the circumstances of. I mean, 1968 is the year where it all comes to a head. So this is the beginning of 1968 is when the movie ends. So the worst is yeah. yet to come, basically. I think that is very on par. Yeah, I th- I think it's a perfect setup. I mean, it's like you said, it captures the era really well. It's yeah. just this is an era that most people, it seems like they wanted to forget. Yeah. Yeah. It is also when your shared cultural experience kind of splits up. Yeah, because there is no longer this this unified cultural experience like the music, the cars. You either stay in that very conservative uh, lane, then your experience is like Laurie and Steve. Yeah, or you totally get out and 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 be apolitical. Then it's like John, but of course John doesn't experience the later years. His storyline ends in '64. Although, if we're really correct, it ends on January first, '65. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. And of course, Terry, we don't know, but of course, the Vietnam War is the the cultural, um, what is the right word, the, uh, where, it, where it all comes to hand, the thing that makes everything change. Yeah, it's really hard the because there is, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. there's a lot filmed in this that looks like it, but also there is footage from the Vietnam War. There is stuff that I recognize from newscasts in this film. And that kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies a little bit, where it's like, no one wants to be watching. Again, like I said, my uncle was there fixing helicopters. Like, he would have been in this place with Terry the Toad. And that kind of was like, ah, like, no one wants, you know this happened, but like, that's not a feel-good way to spend your evening. (laughs) Like, Apocalypse Now is a great movie, but it is not like, Let's make some popcorn and hang out and, you know, snuggle up with your honey and watch Apocalypse. Now, again, <laughs> I'm I mean, sure there are people on this earth who, for th- them, that works for them. And not to yuck anyone's yum, but you need professional help. Again, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's usually not a movie that you sit down to enjoy, but it's a movie that you sit down because um, it is a great piece of art and you want to educate yourself. But um, just like, you're not sitting down and watching Schindler's List and then being, mm. hey, no. pass the Twizzlers, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, I think you, you get that in, in that film. You, you get the transition. We do have some brief pre-Vietnam, still in the US of A, California, 60s stuff. Let's talk about John Milner real quick. Um, I really thought when I was watching it, although then when I was looking at the credits, it must have been something else. When they're fixing the car, the big like climactic last scene for John Milner yeah. at the race, I thought it was a Beach Boy song playing, and I really was excited <laughs> yeah. for that to like have come full circle. That's what for I was him. wondering with the soundtrack. I forgot I was gonna look because I was yeah. like, I don't know if there's any Beach Boys music on here. I don't know if it if it's Beach Boys. I didn't check out but the it's soundtrack. Not sound. But I remember. Well, he said that surfing <laughs> is nothing that I like, and there's a whole lot of surfing <laughs> underneath the segment. Yes. Oh yeah, it's very. It's it's. The end of 1964, California, we are in full Gidget era. (laughs) That girl's hair is like doing my head in with the pigtails, with the bangs. Oh boy. (laughs) I had a question in one of the early scenes where we first see, or in California, and we first see Lori and Steve and Debbie and Terry, and Lori's, you know, pregnant still with the twins, and somebody says... I have Hawaiian punch, so, and, you know, it's still pretty much a uh, staple, I guess, quote, fruit juice. 
<laughs> nowadays but i'm like wow but it was around it was because it was invented in 1934 it was originally an ice cream topping and oh, then oh. in the early 60s i think it kind of they introduced the transition that you know into the fruit juice we know now so i just had to go down that little hole minor <laughs> isn't it isn't it something like that comes in a can and that comes frozen and you, and you thaw it No, it's a powder, then, right? Powder? It's, it's like everything. It's like, I mean, you can buy it and just oh, okay. drink oh, okay. it. Like a... <laughs> I have to admit, my time in California is... It was in the 90s, so... <laughs> things might have changed since then. Because the Hawaiian Punch guy has that weird head with, like, the things on it. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I guess you can just buy it as, like, a regular yeah, pre-made drink. Yeah, they have different flavors. I was thinking, especially in the summer, is the only time I get nostalgic for these things that... Good lord. They can't be good for us. <laughs> no. But like the ice pops that are in the plastic tube. Yeah. You yeah. put them in the Your freezer lips. and they squeeze. They're, they are not meant to be consumed by man, yet they're so good. Yeah. All those brightly colored fruit drinks. Yeah. I know. Oh, oh. They're cool pops with a K. K-O-O-L pops. That's Just like Kool-Aid. My, uh, my aunt that had a pool always had those in her freezer in the summer. And so you'd like jump out of the pool, still be dripping and have one of those. And it was like, ah, uh, who needs air conditioning? You'll be <laughs> sucking one of those uh, pops while your lips turn blue. <laughs> yes. Oh, whole everything. Everything turned whatever color it was that you were having. <laughs> Again, cannot possibly be good for the human body. <laughs> But yeah, it, it really bummed me out that John Milder is kind of a creep. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. such a bummer. I so wanted yes. to. He's so close to not being a creep, and then he always has to throw in like one last creep reference. Yeah. Ugh. What did you expect coming into my trailer? I know that oh. whole. Oh, yeah. He's a bummer. I did appreciate the poor Eva, because at at first I expected it to be where we find out like. Oh, Eva's just pretending to be an exchange student. I was waiting for that. I was Me waiting too. for her to speak perfect English. Because people from Iceland or Sweden or Norway, they usually speak perfect English. <laughs> At least enough to communicate. I know it, I know it's 1964. Maybe things were a little different, but at least a few words. Also, it drove me nuts where he's like, she's from... The North Pole. I he, yeah, he kept saying North Pole. And I was like, Eskimos. Eastland is not that far off, John. <laughs> yeah. John. Yeah. John. Use your thinking cap, John. Yeah. What could Eastland possibly be, John? Yeah. <laughs> well, I would think if, you know, they she came over as part of, I know they briefly kind of explained it, but if it was some sort of like exchange program, I would think she would have some English knowledge. Yeah, because that would yeah, be okay. terrible to just throw, only I for mean, a week. Yeah. This is, uh, again, There is clunkiness to each of these four yeah. stories, yeah. and we are deep in it here. <laughs> the girl who brings her along with with her, Mary Kay Places, the actress. By the way, she plays in another one of those movies, very heavy on nostalgia, The Big Chill. Oh, yeah. But her character, of course, when she introduces Eva to the others, like... Well, she might as well be deaf and dumb because she doesn't speak our language, oh, right? That like, oh, kind of ouch. patronizing culture Very. thing, which of course rubs me as someone who doesn't speak English uh, as their first language either. Kind of rubs me in a very, very wrong way, but... 
I was going nuts because it definitely sounds they're speaking German at some point. They're they're pretending to speak German. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, they're That's, pretending I was to very be. curious how much of this There is one sentence that I actually understood and he asked her like was gibt's zum Essen, which means uh, what is for dinner? And then he just makes sounds that sound like German. It's totally unintelligible gotcha. to me. When well, the okay. thing is, you know, they, they may, you know, she doesn't speak English, but they never at any point, you know, she could probably, you know, who says she's not understanding everything that everybody says, even if she can't speak. I mean, <laughs> to call her. It's, and- yeah. And especially the end of the John Milner store, or uh, not the very end, the end of the race. Yeah. When they're all up there and he has the trophy. But now that I'm thinking about it, his whole storyline up to then, it is such an early 60s beach movie, like, <laughs> suspension of disbelief required because none of this makes sense if you actually think about it. You kind of forget that, like, movies used to just assume that we were, like, this dumb, I guess. <laughs> Where we would just go along with it because we needed the air conditioning and an afternoon of entertainment. <laughs> In which case, it's capturing that perfectly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when he's standing there with the trophy and like pulling her a lot and they're running along and I was just like, God, this is so grease. Yeah. You just expect him to like break out into song at any moment. Yeah. And he gets his victory kiss. Translated <laughs> even. She wants to give you a victory was, kiss. That was pretty cute. And it kills me. Again, all these lines are because you know what's going to happen. That's the only reason there's any depth to them whatsoever, but he wants to take her to the Rose Bowl. Isn't that the most perfectly California thing you've ever heard? How far away is Pasadena from where they are? Pretty far. (laughs) Actually, I don't know. Fremont is down south, isn't it? Shoot. They're at the Fremont Raceway. I don't know where that is other than California, but from from where they live. But but, but you know what? Maybe they're down there. Maybe that's... Yeah, I mean, he he basically lives in an RV now. That's yeah. true. That's because true. he's going from racetrack to racetrack. Yeah, he could go wherever he wants. The first time I saw John, my heart did drop a little. Palamat looks like a lot more than two years have passed. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not very versed in, in what people in 64 were supposed to be uh, looking like. But to me, the whole feel is much later. Much later 60s. You know, it really reminded me of why can't I think of the name at Indiana University and their racing bicycles and he's obsessed with the Italian team. Breaking away. I I don't know if it's just like anytime I see a race, whatever, (laughs) but it it almost had like a 70s feel to me. Yeah. Which it was made in 79 in my defense. (laughs) Yeah, but it, it felt like early 70s more than early to mid 60s. I don't know. It's just such a different world than where, yeah. like, like that level of r- elite racing. It, sure, I'll assume it was like that. I don't know. I have no clue as to the accuracy of, of, of the depiction of that stuff. It's such a niche world that John is living in at that point, which um I'm sure Lucas loved. Oh, at one point, it's at the racetrack, two guys wearing, like, varsity jackets that I think are supposed to be like race officials hop into a car and they're going to go running out to one of the crash scenes or whatever. The person who gets into drive wearing a varsity jacket, I think might be Lucas. Really? He's wearing glasses, the hair, the face, the beard. I kind of wonder if it is. It's so quick. And again, I was watching my laptop. I could not tell. Uh-huh. But I know Lucas owned a jacket like that. I'm just saying. It could very well be. It could be. Yeah. I wonder if Lucas has a teeny tiny cameo. And let's face it, 
where would Lucas want to be at the, at race the racing? Track. Yeah. <laughs> Although I always got the feeling that John Milner would more like go into NASCAR, but this That's, real yeah, high-speed yeah, track I, racing? I, I could see that. Well, I guess you like the, en- you know, the engine aspect of it. Which I love, there's a moment with his rival where he's like, my engine's better, but your car looks nicer or something yeah. like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. they kind of have this, that's the real romance, people. <laughs> yeah. They're very good natured. <laughs> and that other guy working together. Yeah. They're very good natured to each other. The drivers among them, they have rivalries, but they're never mean to each yeah. other. I'll, I'll bring it back. Uh, I made a reference to Doc Hudson Hornet in one of our first episodes and I'll bring it back here in Cars 3 they talk about how the lead racers all have these crazy rivalries and pull pranks on each other because they're on the same racing circuit they see each other like these are their friends these are their colleagues and that's the vibe I got off these guys the only time John really gets mad at him like angry is when he tries to make a move on Eva Mm -hmm. of course then John makes a move on Eva John you know, this Ugh. this is one of the things that I didn't like about the film, but it might have been a very realistic depiction of, of whatever went on there. Basically, every guy who sees her tries to make a pass at her. Honestly, that part, having watched MASH many times, that part seems about realistic, but what killed me is I could even see, I can see him taking her to the camper and making a move. And I could even see him saying once, what do you think was going to happen? Which is BS, but I could see him thinking it. But he keeps coming back to that. Yeah. That annoyed me. Once their relationship took a turn, I felt like he should have been sorry that he did that. Oh, yeah. We're still in those days where if she says no, she really means yes, you know? (sighs) Yeah. Okay, update. Pasadena is approximately five hours, six minutes from Fremont, California. 357 miles. Wow. This is a big date. (laughs) Thank you, Google Maps. And that's just approximate. I just typed in Fremont, California and Pasadena. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. You did more work than I did. Just start midday, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I I think this is more uh, movie magic. Yeah. People know what the Rose Bowl is, sure. People know the Rose Bowl is on New Year's Day, sure. (laughs) But when is it on New Year's Day? (laughs) See, and this is where the bias of me being on the East Coast. I know when I wake up, there's a parade on, but that doesn't tell us much. (laughs) I know. But Eva doesn't know. That's true. Oh, God, is he kidnapping Eva? What's going on here? (laughs) He wants to marry her? Taking her five hours south? What's going on? I know. (laughs) Is he serious there? I don't know. Could just be lust of the moment. Yeah. Good thing they're not close to Las Vegas. Oh, wait. Maybe Uh, he thinks that's their second date. (laughs) But yeah, it's uh, clunky. That's the word I keep coming back to. But it's not bad. Like, this story is silly, but it looks cool. It makes sense. It gets us where we need to get, which is that we have this wonderful last day with John. And then we see him out on the road in his yellow Ford Juice. I'm so glad they didn't actually show the crash. I know. Yeah. Tis implied. Thank you, Hills. Yeah. Then, of course, yeah, um, it still says in, in, in the ending at the credits, he's killed in December 1964. But we, the last thing we hear him listen to is Old Lang Syne on the radio. Yeah. And Old Lang Syne is not played before midnight. Yeah, so technically, yeah. Well, they already fudged that because it originally was like September or something. June. Yeah, I, I read yeah. it. It was June, oh, June. originally. Okay. And then they 
like George Lucas tries to change things retroactively, they they changed it in the credits of the original movie as well. Yeah. You know what? I love that this is something George Lucas has done throughout his career. That makes me feel a lot better about the special yeah. editions. <laughs> That's just how that man rolls. There is a special edition of American Graffiti, yes. <laughs> Even though that is the only change. Yeah, and it, it bummed me out to realize, so it still says Terry was reported missing in action, and people have pointed out, like, no, he definitely would have been reported killed in action. Yes, because because everyone presumes that he's blown up in the latrine. Yeah. yeah. He and Sinclair are the only two people who know. And that's one thing that I always find fascinating. This happened, whatever season of Fargo Kirsten Dunst was in, there was a really good, towards the end of it, I won't say who to spoil it, but there's a couple characters who basically decide to start over. And they just drive away, drive to a new town, become new people. And as someone who grew up and now we live in a world where that is completely impossible, I'm fascinated by the fact that people actually used to do this. I was listening to a history podcast on uh, Harriet Quimby, I think is her name. Stuff you missed in history class. Yes, yeah. and they were saying that uh, they don't know for sure a lot of details, like which one is right, because she reported it different ways, different times. And they said something like, people could just do that then. <laughs> people could just say they were born in California when they were born in Minnesota. And who was gonna know? <laughs> it blows my mind, the idea that Terry could just like walk out new name, new person, move on with your life. Although that's a lot harder to do in Europe, so maybe he ended up someplace else. Although he wanted to go to Europe. He might have ended up in Mexico. Oh, yeah. Maybe he became the new Wolfman Jack. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I keep wondering, since he is reported missing in action, did they go through the debris of the latrine and didn't find any human remains and then maybe, maybe. said, well, oh. well oh, maybe he maybe wasn't that's... here. Maybe they had to do it like a technicality, like since we don't have a body body to send home, we have to do a report. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, and then we get Lori and Steve, not definitively marital status either way. <laughs> yeah, he's still <laughs> an edition. insurance salesman and she is what, like the head of a consumer group. Yeah. What is that? Lori gets to work some corporate thing I don't understand. <laughs> and then because Kurt is in Canada... Well, good luck with that, Lori. Kurt's in Canada. Uh, instead, we get to hear that Debbie is a country western singer now. Yeah. Which so she kind stays of with the fit, band. Yeah, it kind of fits her character, though. She is not really a hippie. No, De Debbie is a Debbie is just experiencing life, man. Yeah, she goes with the flow. Yeah. And you know what? Andy has disappeared again. No more mentioning of the little brother that was. <laughs> I love that they knew we didn't care about Andy. <laughs> they tried to make us care, but they knew we wouldn't. <laughs> and we don't know what happens to Carol slash Rainbow. Yeah, which is sad. I'm going to hope since this film seems to be leaning on mostly happy endings. I mean, even though John's ending is still the sad ending, they give him this amazing last day where everything turns out right in the end. So I'm going to assume that if they had said something, it would be in a similar vein, where it's like, maybe it's not perfect, but it's not awful. Yeah. And uh, this is a perfect time to shout out 
to my father, who even before I could drive, banned my sister and I from ever driving on New Year's Eve or St. Patrick's Day. My dad had been a bartender, Mm. and those are amateur hours. Your dad is a very wise man. Do not drive on those days. People who do not normally drink have been drinking. Mm. So, not that you should be driving if you normally drink, but... (laughs) You know... What else? What else is different in this movie than the other one? The music. The music is uh, by far not as iconic. We haven't been talking about it, basically. Yeah. Our mandate. Mm. <laughs> I was surprised, but then I realized I shouldn't have been by the amount of Motown. Yeah. It starts with Heat Wave. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, it starts out with a with a pretty iconic Motown. Martha and the Vandellas. It's so funny because when you think of Vietnam chopper scenes, you always think of the doors or all this late 60s droning stuff. And it's like, no, those guys were listening to like early 60s music. Yeah, and maybe even the crooners. We have like a Moon Uh, River throw in. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) It's just that. The, the soundtrack here doesn't kind of underline the story the way it does in the in American Graffiti. The only one I kind of had was when they play Respect. It's when Lori and Steve are arguing. It kind of drives home that idea that Lori, you know, wants to be more. She wants more out of life than being a housewife and then just a mom. She wants some respect mm. of who she is and what she wants out of life. Lori has developed a serious psychological condition. Yeah. She's a compulsive cleaner. She has OCD. Yeah, and a compulsive breaker of things. <laughs> but I understand that when you get so angry sometimes or you just you have to like throw something. I mean, usually I don't throw breakable things, but she is so unhappy where she is. Oh, yeah. And they always they do that obvious, you know, where then Steve, she runs, you know, she goes to her brother's house and then Steve has to, you know, handle everything, which he does very... Wear an apron and slam about and... Yeah, also that kind of slapsticky bad dad. I love when the kid gets into the fish tank. He's like, get your feet out of... <laughs> I, was waiting for, I was waiting for him to pop the fish into his mouth. That's what I yeah, thought he was going to do. I thought, I thought he was, was waiting to see what he was going to do. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, there's a commercial for the teacher needing a vacation. And it shows oh, uh, yeah, and a they... little preschool running wild. And the kid gets in the fish tank. And I love that commercial because that kid is just having the best day of his life. Yeah. They show him <laughs> laughing and smiling. And I always crack up when I see it. It's my favorite commercial. I I forgot like, about that commercial. And his friend gets in with him. And I'm like, this is the best day of their lives. This is great. It's it's an interesting film. Again, I think the main thing is, so the four stories do not intersect. The music does not cross over. I have had 96 tears stuck in my head for like a week now. And <laughs> they're all doing, I mean, the Motown kind of goes throughout the film. But it doesn't because it doesn't touch Debbie's story. But you see in Heatwave and then they're singing like Baby Love on the bus and stuff. But it doesn't really, you only hear Wolfman Jack and Milner's and then at the end for the New Year's Eve. It, I mean, on the one hand, it makes sense that Wolfman Jack kind of disappears from this world. But that's not a feel-good, pull-the-movie-together thing. I mean, it's all taking place on the same night in the calendar. But of course, it's not taking place in the same year. So the music cannot intersect. The radio cannot connect their stories like it did in the other one. Yeah, it's a totally different premise. 
And at the end of the day, I wonder, as I was watching this at the beginning, and especially in the Debbie scenes, but actually in all of them, and in the fact that the four stories are all filmed differently, I wonder, I got a very big vibe watching this of when you find like Lucas's student films on YouTube or whatever, and Francis Ford Coppola and the stuff they were doing, it reminded me of that. And I wondered if maybe one of the reasons George Lucas didn't like this was because it reminded him of his student films. And it was like, well, it's 1979. We've moved past this. Mm -hmm. I'm completely making this up. I could be totally wrong. If people have seen interviews with George Lucas where he talks about this, let me know. Drop them in the Mel's Listeners Drive-In group. But that was my kind of like hypothesis. Because this is not a bad movie. It's not a great movie. It's not as good as American Graffiti, but it's not bad. Why did he dislike it so much? And I I wonder if it was kind of one of those like, I'm I'm past this now. Yeah. And then of course, by people watching it, if you have a movie like American Graffiti that is so beloved that everyone thinks, or basically almost everyone thinks is great, I mean, sequel always kind of has a difficult time. If that were a standalone movie with characters we haven't met before, okay, we wouldn't be invested in them anyway. But I think it would be like your standard 70s film. Yeah, yeah. late 60s, early 70s. I mean, this came out in the late 70s, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, it probably would have disappeared completely from pop culture awareness. Probably. By... If it hadn't, didn't have the title American Graffiti in there. Yeah. yeah. We we wouldn't be doing a podcast episode on it. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the German title is The Party is Over. By the way, the German title is the English title, but it's called The Party is Over. Huh. That's very fitting, I think, for this. And that's a, it's just more of a bummer. Yeah. yeah I think it's <laughs> Despite too... the happy endings. Yeah. Yeah. Wh what is what is coming? Lori and Steve are still married. Their kids are getting older. They're moving even further into adulthood, and we don't know about any of the other characters individually. We just get to know that Debbie sings. I hope she's happy. When I think with this, it's just, you know, like we said before with the first one, it's nostalgia. And then this one, like we, you know, it's not really something we want to be nostalgic about. And it's the just cure it's too for nostalgia. Real. Like it's too realistic. It's like, you know, it's not that bit of escapism that, you know, sometimes you you want from something that you watch. I mean, you want to escape back into to your youth Nostalgia, yeah, when yeah. you still had those dreams of what great life you're going to have. And then this is, of course, they're now in, well, this is the life that most grown-ups have. We have a yeah, mortgage. Like we're we have living kids. this life now. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is not... Our ice sculptures are melting. <laughs> ice sculptures for a New Year's Eve party at 23-year-olds. Ice sculptures. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> They're like squared, squared. They're super squared. I'm trying to think of a happy way to wrap up our discussion of more American graffiti because I really did like it. Yeah. I liked it more than I remembered liking it. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it more than I thought I would. Yeah. I was expecting a train wreck. I was very yeah. pleasantly surprised, especially knowing how it ends. Like I said, halfway through, I was very like, all right, I guess this is fine. You know, like this could have been a short and it would have been, it would have achieved the purpose. And then by the end of the movie, I'm like, that was a fun ride. I'm feeling good. I remember my own words that when we recorded our very first episodes, when I told you, well, don't watch it. I'll take yeah. that back. It is at least worth watching it once. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Well, I'm glad since we made you watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess what... And I like that even though we know, especially with Milner and Terry, 
even at the end of, you know, the first movie, you know, it's kind of like, womp, womp, you know, you kind of are like, oh, man. But you get, you get that last bit of time with them in this movie, which is nice because you still get, you're like, oh, you know, hey, there's my favorite, you know, character. And you're kind of on tenterhooks then the movie because you're like, okay, now, 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 you know, because you're expecting... Yeah. But you still get that little bit of like, oh, I still get another day with them, you know. It's a long last day for Terry. A lot happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a long last day for everyone. I mean, they must they they must start out like 7 a.m. <laughs> and it's a long last day for us. This might be our longest episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about a whole movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not just a song, not just a scene. A whole movie, but we we have to talk about a whole movie because we have to uh, we have to store up our love of movies for the winter. That's a weird analogy. I don't <laughs> think I'm gonna go there. Uh, this is the this is the last episode of this season of American Graffiti, one song at a time. Brought to you by VCR Privileges, but we'll we'll return next summer. We'll do we'll do another summer movie. But it's actually it's it's okay to feel sad. The summer is over now. See you in September. September. And don't wear white <laughs> after Labor Day. <laughs> Even though I don't know why. <laughs> I love it. Now go put oh. your Christmas lights up. No, I'm just joking. Don't do that, people. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's not, oh, not quite time for Christmas would. yet. No. It's like summer's over. Here comes all the Christmas things. No. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my favorite. I love this time of year, but... I'm a Halloween baby, so I love fall. Well, I'm not quite. I'm I'm an almost Halloween baby. Almost Halloween baby. I'm an October baby as well, so. I like, yeah, and that's like my favorite. I love like late September, October. Well, I'm I'm an August baby and a summer camp person. And so as I pack up, you know, take the docks out of the pond, store the sailboats in the rec hall for this for the winter. And everyone's going back to school. I board up my buildings and go into hibernation. <laughs> go into hibernation. <laughs> Until I emerge. And uh, yeah, VCR privileges will return <laughs> in summer. 2022, which seems crazy to say. We live in the future. Of course. <laughs> yes. It's September so, in our yeah. future. We may have flying cars by then. Uh, yeah. Maybe broadcasting from Mars. Who knows? <laughs> if Elon Musk gives us a free ride on one of his rockets, <laughs> maybe. Yes. There you go. <laughs> now you know he'll just start his own podcast and take all our numbers. <laughs> he probably already has one. <laughs> oh, I'm out of the loop. I'm not out of the loop on... Our social media, uh, we mentioned Mel's Listeners Drive-In, which is a Facebook group where we talk all things American graffiti. That is where, if you're on Facebook, come hang out with us. We can con- The show may be over, but we can continue to hang out and share stuff there. And reminisce over summers. Yeah, good times. Back to school. Ah, oh, back to school. Back to school is so real for each year I have to go back to school. Oh. Uh, no, I'm going back to school until I retire. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for spending a good chunk of your summer here with us talking about American graffiti. So I guess I am signing off for one last time. DJ Tierney hanging up the headphones. <laughs> DJ Doris signing off as well. And DJ Rachel turning off her mic. I think that's the most like ending we've ever had. Yes. For an episode. <laughs> <laughs>